Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vitor Sobral. Having been a Portuguese migrant playing sport in Australia, I'm all too aware of what happens when cultures clash on the sporting field. And this culture clash is something that also happens when implementing community sport for development programs. And so sport for development and acculturation is the topic for this episode. And joining us to consider this is a researcher who is the star of the episode on school sport <laughs> policy, but of course has also published about sport development programs. He's assistant professor of sport and recreation management at Temple University. It's Gareth Jones. Welcome, Gareth. Or welcome Hi, back. Hi, how are we doing again? I'm great. And uh, it's great to see you again as well. I assume you can barely walk through university halls now after your appearance on the podcast, constantly signing autographs. I'm sure lecture halls are filled for your lessons. Is that about yeah, right? They- the, the campus is actually, I was there today picking up things from my office. And as you could imagine, there's no one there. So I've, I've been checking uh, social media and my inbox routinely waiting for the, uh, the attention to come, but right. maybe it'll come in the fall. It's, it's coming. I can tell you like it's, it's, the, <laughs> it's the podcast bounce, no doubt. Gareth and co-authors Elizabeth Taylor, Christine Wegner, Colin Lopez, Heather Kennedy, and Anthony Pizzo recently published Cultivating Safe Spaces Through a Community Sport for Development Event, Implications for Acculturation. So Gareth, we know there's a lot of research in the sport for development field. How did this paper help our understanding of the area? This paper, the, the one thing that was interesting about it is a lot of work in the sport development field tends to be projects or in this case events that are designed and implemented by nonprofit organizations. And in this instance, it was actually an event that was developed, implemented, and has been running now for close to five years, COVID obviously interrupting that, by uh, a local government and specifically a Parks and Recreation Agency um, with help from the Office of Immigrant Immigrant Affairs, among others. So I think that actually added a, a management, a different management dynamic to it that from a sport management perspective, certainly filtered down to what we were studying, which was the impact of the event on these communities. So in addition to continuing to apply and extend the framework put forth by Bage and, and Schulenkorf, and I know I'm butchering uh, the, the first thing, so I apologize, but I, I do think that different kind of mode of implementation is something that's uh, interesting and quite unique in the sport for development space. And also you take that cultural and, and safe space perspective. Why was it mm-hmm. useful to, to take that perspective when we're looking at sport for development? So it, in this context in particular, um, it was research that was conducted during a time in the United States where particularly with, with this population, the importance of safe, safe space was, I think, paramount because as I'm sure a lot of people know, uh, in our country during that time, immigration was a very hot topic and particularly the well-being of immigrant migrant communities in the United States was was a concern, quite frankly. And so the importance of understanding how these types of spaces can be leveraged and created, not just through sport, but obviously, you know, that's what re- we research. So, but the importance of understanding that I think was paramount. The framework is acculturation. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's difficult to say because you don't want to say occult. It's a cult because a cult mm-hmm. is something completely different, obviously. Um, now, mm-hmm. in terms of acculturation, tell us what that's about, what that means. There's a lot of different acculturating situations. So you could have people who on their own accord and by their own decision are uh, immigrating to a country for work purposes, family purposes, things like that. But that's not always the case. There could be a variety of reasons that people are moving to a new country. And so that's something that certainly we wanted to try to capture in these results. And for anyone that's done work in this area, you can imagine that that's quite difficult. And so this being a qualitative piece, one thing that we dealt with is 
there were multiple countries involved in this tournament. And so there were multiple different languages as well. And so in addition to trying to have individuals kind of reflect on the experiences of their community, we also knew that there were different experiences within those, those different communities. And so that process of not only, you know, you think about culturally starting to adapt and become comfortable in a new space, even just things about public transportation, how to get from point A to B employment wise, not only finding a job, but understanding what are the kind of norms and, and, and policies and procedures associated with that job, and then extending that out to the culture, not just learning the language, but learning it enough to be able to speak with others and socialize and finding opportunities to not just become acquainted with and understand the new culture, but also retain aspects of your own. And that's something that I think is an important part of that body of research is we're not talking in this instance about assimilation into a culture. We're talking about integration is a word that I do know gets thrown around quite a bit, but marrying aspects of, uh, again, understanding it and becoming one with a new culture while also feeling comfortable retaining aspects of your own is really, I think, something that's key to that process. The, the physical dimensions are about providing, I guess, in the true sense of the word, that safe space. And I, and I think in our study, what we found was really important is that the involvement of the local government really sent a message that these were going to be safe spaces where individuals could, and communities could come and, and truly express themselves. The psychological and sociocultural dimensions relate more to, as you can imagine, psychological is that sense of well-being. Is this a space where you feel happy? Is this a space where you feel comfortable? And the sociocultural piece is obviously extending that a little bit more to the social interactions people have within those spaces. The one that we were actually interested in was that experimental piece, because in the initial framework, Sometimes safe space can be somewhat of a misnomer because that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be challenging and confrontational, maybe not the right word, but, but dialogue that pushes people. And so that experimental piece really focuses not on the ability to have that dialogue, but to be able to act on it. So there's one thing to have a sport event, for example, that can make everyone feel good and, pr and provide a space for people to be physically active and together, but can it also be leveraged as a space to have those critical conversations and then push policies that might help address them. And that was something that at the end of this, when we looked across our data, we kind of found that that is kind of a piece that really should be a component of all the dimensions. And so when you're thinking about how an event might contribute to psychological or, or sociocultural dimensions of space space, understanding how experimental dimensions of that filter into those two aspects is key, as opposed to just thinking of it as this fifth dimension unto itself. This was, as you mentioned, a qualitative study. You used as a, your your case study uh, the Diversity Cup, which is that uh, the tournament, the sport event that mm -hmm. you mentioned. Why was that a useful event to research? The first thing is it, it uh, topically. I mean, obviously, it did it, it. It was a tournament that was focused on specifically promoting that acculturation process, uh, focusing on the populations that we were interested in. I guess the two things that I alluded to previously was given the broader context in the United States, politically and socially, it was occurring at a time that was quite unique and interesting to understand. And some of that came out in the results that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. And then also just the way that it was organized and managed. Like I said, a lot of sport for development work tends to be delivered and implemented through nonprofit or, or kind of third sector organizations. Whereas this from the start really was a project that was initiated by the local government delivered through the parks and rec department with, with help from uh, other agencies as well. So that really kind of to us made it an interesting context to study and, and uh, use as a case study for this work. 
it does make a lot of sense. And the method you'd use was eight focus groups. Now, I think one gives me a headache just thinking about putting that together. Uh, <laughs> how difficult was it to organize and, and of course, control and, and make sure you know, you got to think about social uh, desirability and, and all yeah. that thinking? Yeah, no, that was without a doubt the hardest part of this project. And so we did a lot of reading into uh, how to go about this process the most effective way. And there's uh, now actually over 50 teams competing in this tournament that represent 50 completely different countries across the world. And you could imagine how many languages and dialects are wrapped into that. And when we were thinking about the approach to this, qualitative work made sense because it gave an opportunity for people to actually talk about their experiences with this event. And we thought that was key to understanding this particular phenomena. But obviously we didn't have a staff on board that could understand 20 different languages. And so we decided to ask the different teams, which themselves were organized by the communities they represented, to select one person that could be a player, uh, it could be a manager, it could be someone that was involved in the team in some other way to speak on behalf of the experiences of their community. And although imperfect, we felt like that was the best way to really kind of access those lived experiences. And they were kind of, you can call them key informants to that process. The, the next key piece of that, though, is that we needed to meet these individuals in their own communities. And so these focus groups, there were actually several games that were played close to the university campus. And so we were able to schedule some focus groups there. But actually, most of them occurred at recreation centers across the city. And so that was something that was important that, you know, we ordered food, we had a designated time. And I think Another key aspect of selecting, you know, a focus group as opposed to interviews, for example, is that initial kind of moment to have some food, interact with each other, but then also us as researchers as well to build that rapport before we sit down and do any of the questioning. I do think that was really important. And I do think it was important for individuals to come together and talk as a group collectively to us through that focus group. It was certainly a challenge, but I think by thinking about finding key informants, by uh, meeting those key informants in the, in the communities that they represent, and then by um, using the benefits of that focus group approach to really kind of create a, a conversation and a dialogue served as well. It always seems like the really challenging methods are the ones that give you the, the, the best it's, in, enriched data, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very, I'll be honest, it was, it was very difficult, but I, I, we didn't want to let the difficulty stop us from, from trying to do it, of course. You used in vivo and the Braun and Clark thematic analysis. Um, mm-hmm. I assume that made things a lot easier in trying to, to sift through the data and, and analyze that. Yeah, and that's always the the give and take. I mean, we decided to take a, a relatively deductive approach to the thematic analysis because we, in framing this up theoretically, had really been informed by that framework of safe space with those five dimensions. And so we knew that if what we were studying is how this event contributed to cultivating these safe spaces and how they might have been leveraged to promote some of those impacts that we were looking at, well, then that was at least a starting point for us to really kind of understand how those dimensions manifested in the data. So tell us what what were the key findings, what what were the results, uh, and how did they compare to to what you had in the literature? One of the uh, key things related to that kind of unique context of of a local government delivering this event, it related in some ways to the broader political context. So at the time, the political context nationally in the United States was quite combative towards immigrant policy, and in some cases, immigrant communities. 
Um, and you'd seen that on the, the news and things like that. And so it was kind of part of the mainstream national rhetoric at that time. But the city in which this study occurred was what was classified as a sanctuary uh, city. And so the local government rhetoric surrounding immigration and immigrant communities was actually quite different. And that seemed to manifest in the results. And so when we talked about kind of the formation of these place-based identities, you know, the purpose of the event is really trying to make sure that communities felt like this, this was their home. They felt, they felt safe in the city. Uh, we, we saw elements of that in the data, but oftentimes in describing that, it was juxtaposed with how they felt about the United States more generally. You know, for example, someone would often explain how the event had contributed to them feel, feeling like this particular city was their home. But that was so important because, and then they would mention the broader political climate of the, and so that was interesting because, you know, you had this formation of a stronger place-based identity related to the city that was kind of oscillating with a national context that wasn't really changing. And so you'd expect that because it was a local event. It's not like, but that was certainly an interesting finding because in terms of promoting that acculturation process, like you mentioned, you don't want those two things to be separate and you certainly don't want those two things diverging, right? So that that was a key finding. Um, another thing related to sports specifically a lot of sport for development projects kind of change traditional modes of sport in some cases to deliver them in ways that are a little bit more developmentally appropriate or more catered towards specific goals. And we actually found in this data that delivering soccer in its true, you know, competitive traditional form was, was key to, to promoting the engagement of these communities with the event itself. The other thing that was key is that the Parks and Rec Department was actually the, the, the conduit through which a lot of these communities were engaging with local government. So whether or not that's getting permits for their own sporting events or for barbecues and things like that, that's really the department with which a lot of these communities are interacting with on a regular basis. And so that led to a level of trust that when the event was put forth, it really did have a little bit more uptake and engagement than I think uh, anyone could have anticipated, really. So the combination of sport, soccer in its traditional form, and then also the involvement of that particular agency, I think was key. And then finally, one thing we did find is that while particularly from a sociocultural perspective, not only was it helpful in, in promoting these community relations, but also cross-community relations among different immigrant communities. In some cases, a lot of times people referred to connecting different pockets but it wasn't as successful at engaging what you might call local residents. So individuals who aren't necessarily representative or identifying with immigrant communities, they might know of the soccer tournament, but they're not necessarily engaging with it. And so it was interesting because as you may know, in the United States, soccer is continuing to grow and it's kind of becoming mainstream, but it's still might not necessarily be associated as like your traditional American sport. Obviously, that cultural appeal is why it resonated so much with immigrant and migrant communities. And yet that might also have been the very same reason why there was a lack of engagement from the actual local kind of city community. And that was something that, you know, the event organizers were really looking to change is they wanted to see not just this event be seen as something that's for um, immigrant communities in the city, but something that's for the city itself. Because, again, this isn't about assimilation or and this isn't about protecting your own culture identity at all costs. This is about finding common ground and, and integrating those, those two wor worlds. 
really fascinating findings there. And I can see how that, that actually relates to, to my own experience, having played in similar tournaments and, and played for a Portuguese yeah. football club or soccer club in, in Australia. Now, how did this advance our understanding of the theory and sport for development? For us, that understanding of how to actually operationalize and implement sport, I think in this instance, getting that understanding that in this case, soccer in its traditional form was actually key to engagement. You know, there's kind of two sides to that. It might be key to engagement, but the way in which it's delivered might not necessarily, it it might not be as flexible to implementing some of those sport for development values or key concepts. So intentional programming sometimes does require sport to be a little bit flexible with its rules and policies. And so if you're going to focus on just traditional sports, such in this case, you might not necessarily have that flexibility yet. It could be key to engaging that initial population. So one of the things we talked about towards the end of this article is looking at this more in a long-term approach. So while this initial tournament might be key to engaging these target populations down the line, can you integrate more programming into, um, achieving some of the more specific outcomes that you're focusing on. And one thing we found in this, and this has been mentioned in previous sport for development work, but we found it was actually key to this event because now it's been going for five years. It doesn't always have to be sport. So sport can be that engagement piece, but they've actually had different arts and cultural festivals wrapped up into this event that have been very successful. Food trucks routinely come and they've had food festivals and things like that that are now, again, the event might be driving it, but these have all been layered in. Um, there's a flag ceremony at the end of the tournament that's always very popular. Um, there's also a naturalization ceremony. And there's all types of things wrapped up into it now that actually don't even have anything to do with soccer, but they've used the inertia of the event to push some of these other, you call them sport for development kind of outcomes or, or development outcomes. And again, some of that is somewhat related. The flag ceremony happens before the game, for example, but others have been, you know, health clinics being able to set up or provide information at games. The city is pushing recycling and waste management initiatives. So having those types of receptacles and again, information set up at games using the communication network that was created through the event to push some of these other developmental goals that in many cases don't have anything to do with sport, but leverage that network that was created through sport was key. Those were some of the kind of the the key, I guess you put them more in that practical bucket things that we found through this. And, I, and then I think theoretically in terms of applying and pushing the framework of, of safe space that was initially put out, I think that idea that, and to be honest, Space and, and Schulenkorf have kind of referenced this before, but the importance of that experimental dimension, which in this event, I think they're pushing towards that. They might not necessarily be there yet, but not just facilitating dialogue, but providing, can these spaces be actually cultivated in the truest sense of the word and leveraged to then change policy, change practice. Some evidence of that, for example, some communities living in certain areas of the city were able to express to parks and rec officials, hey, there's limited options here. We don't have many fields. We don't have many indoor spaces for for people to play. Can we address this? And that's something that now is starting to not only be addressed through the maintenance and in some cases, complete refurbishment of facilities, but additional programming. There's a whole youth programming or soccer-based youth programming effort that started as a result of this event. And so those are things that I think show you have to go beyond just having these conversations. You have to then start acting on them. And, I, and, and that's something that 
can you do all that in the first year? Probably not. Can you do all that in the second year? Probably not. It really is something that takes that long-term strategic management mindset. I think that really builds on, on like you say, what, what Shulun Kolf has, has said in the past yeah. and in a, in, a, in a previous podcast as well, which you can listen to, and also Welty Peachy in a, in a previous one too. So I can see how all of that comes together. And, and your, I think your practical advice is, is spot on too. It's not just about sport, food and sport. It's the perfect combo. It's mm. perfect. Bring it together. Yeah. Gareth, it's been absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Really interesting and, and fascinating research. Yeah, thanks for having me again. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I'm always happy to talk about this work. Thanks so much, Gareth. All right. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research that's being published, including the article discussed in this episode, Cultivating Safe Spaces Through a Community Sport for Development Event, Implications for Acculturation. That's it for this episode, but of course, there are many more you can listen to on your favorite podcast player. And if you could follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating, that'd be great too. Until next time, it's bye for now.